0: From South Carolina Public Radio, this is the South Carolina lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on July 31st, 2023, from my hotel room here in Miami, Florida. Sunny Miami. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. Okay, y'all, you're probably wondering why are they in Miami right now? That's right, me and AT are down here in Miami this week because we are part of a select few that were chosen by PRX for their journalism podcast accelerator program. That's right. We're meeting up with our cohort of podcasters from across the country, and then we'll be working on potential changes and improvements to the pod over the next 12 weeks. Now, fear not, listeners, you'll still have your favorite lead, but maybe we'll have some changes. Maybe another pod in the lead extended universe. Who knows? Who knows? So since we're out this week, we pre tape this episode, and I cut up some moments from a recent Palmetto Perspective show on human trafficking that aired on SCE TV on July 20th that was hosted by Thalisha Eady. I was also on set co-hosting with Alicia and asking questions that viewers posted on social media. The hour-long special opened with a short segment that I produced about recent findings from the Human Trafficking Task Force. In 2022, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division supported 416 human trafficking victims from 440 cases throughout South Carolina, according to the State Human Trafficking Annual Report. Of the total number of victims, 399 were minors and 17 were adults. They led four commercial sex operations to combat human trafficking in regions around the state, resulting in the arrest of 13 sex buyers. Here's South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson.
1: Well, when you look at the sharp increase in labor trafficking, I think a lot of that could be to the very thing that we were talking about earlier is that when people think of human trafficking, they think of sex trafficking, right? You know, they think of someone being the snatch and grab or the coercion, so forcing someone in the prostitution, but people don't realize that there's a labor trafficking area in our state. Um, and people who are the easiest to prey on, uh, for labor trafficking purposes are people where there's a language barrier, or maybe they're here illegally. Um, you know, Latinos, people from south of the border and other countries below there. They're coming to our state. They don't speak good English or any English at all. Uh, they, they don't have the ability to communicate. They're also afraid to report to law enforcement authorities because they're afraid that they will be you know, taken away and, and, and returned back to the, their country of origin. And so there probably wasn't a lot of uh, as many reports on it because people didn't recognize it as a crime, but also because the victims of the crime themselves were uh, like in the sex trafficking arena. People who were prostituting wouldn't go report that they were a trafficking victim because usually they're engaged in illicit crimes themselves. So that that is why they're easy to exploit. So that's why I I believe you're seeing an uptick in labor trafficking because we're seeing, we're educating people about it. We're seeing the effects of it more frequently, and then we're able to identify it as such.
0: Monique Garvin is the director of the South Carolina Attorney General's Office of the State Human Trafficking Task Force, and she gave this overview of human trafficking, what it is, and what it looks like.
2: So when someone uses force, fraud of coercion to compel someone to engage in sexual or labor behaviors against their will, Um, We oftentimes see that happening in various communities, but people oftentimes have concerns or questions around what is force, fraud and coercion look like. And so when we talk about force, fraud and coercion. We think about force being more of that physical violence, that physical abuse. We're looking at things like restraint or confinement. When it comes to things like fraud, one might be compelled to do fraud by offering things like a modeling career, a better life, marriage, um, anything that's going to offer something that they probably can't follow through on or won't follow through on, but used to lure the victim in and to manipulate them. The most common form of trafficking that we see, although, is coercion. Mm-hmm. And coercion is going to be that psychological abuse. Um, you might see things like shame, um, abuse, control, threatening their family, threatening the individual. One thing that we've been seeing with our youth, we've seen an uptick of youth exchanging inappropriate photos between one another and then traffickers using that as a way to blackmail them, um, to compel them to engage in sexual acts. So those are the three forms that we see. And while we're talking about that, it's important for us to highlight that youth who are under the age of 18 if they're engaged in commercial sets, they are, we don't have to prove that force, fraud, or coercion. And if they're engaging in commercial sets, they're automatically going to be a victim of human trafficking. So it's important for us to notate that because we don't want to leave the perception that we have things like child prostitutes or mm-hmm. blaming children for their vulnerability and for their exploitation. You know, we have, I think when people hear the word human trafficking, their mind may automatically go to sex trafficking. But like we have been seeing in the headlines and what we saw in the piece, there is sex trafficking and then labor trafficking. Is one more prevalent than the other here in South Carolina? Um, we we do have an emphasis. We do see an emphasis on sex trafficking in South Carolina. However, we have seen a 450 percent increase in labor trafficking compared to last year's data. And so while sex trafficking has gotten more attention over the years, we are refocusing and seeing and and putting an emphasis on labor trafficking as well. Sex trafficking is one of the types of trafficking that's not more prominent necessarily, but it's more recognizable. And so that's why it's important for us to increase the labor trafficking initiative that we are um, launching in our state task force. Um, And also just highlighting both forms so we don't overemphasize one over the other.
0: Lieutenant Jade Roy with the state law enforcement division gave more details and examples on the labor side of human trafficking, which, like you've heard, has become an increasing problem in our state. Labor trafficking oftentimes involves our foreign
3: national community, and so um, they, in and of themselves, are vulnerable uh, when they come into our country, whether they're here legally or they've crossed the border uh, or come into the country in, in a different way, uh, not not legally, and so. We're here to help those folks understand that the, that they may be getting taken advantage of, and so um, what we want to ensure is that they're reporting those things to us when they occur. Some of the red flags that come into those elements that we see in restaurants and hospitality uh, community, as Monique said, and and our agriculture community, and and sometimes in our factories and and our industries, is that um, you know they're working long extended hours. Many many instances where they were recruited for one particular uh, pay rate. It may be that they're not getting paid what the original contract said, or what they were told that they would be paid when they when they took on the job, uh, or they're forced to work extended hours beyond what they would have normally worked. And so, in the agriculture community, you know, uh, in many instances, those those jobs uh, start early in the morning to beat that hot South Carolina sun. In many instances, we've we've seen where. They're called upon at two, three o'clock in the morning to go out into the to different fields where uh, they wouldn't have otherwise been, and in other instances, there's there's commonly threats of uh, either deportation if they're from our foreign national communities, um, or uh, threats that they're going to be reported to law enforcement if they don't continue to cooperate with the with the job that they're in, and so those different things present in different ways. A lot of instances, they're living on certain properties or with, it, with families in, in some, some instances where, they're, again, they're told if they attempt to leave, there's threats of, uh, like, again, the deportation or threats of violence, threats uh, that they will be, that their families will be taken advantage of or, or abused if they don't continue to participate in these uh, labor services.
0: But there are some protections if they do <clears throat> report to law enforcement, if they are? Absolutely. Their immigration status is questionable.
3: Absolutely. And in, in, in those instances, we work with our uh, victim service providers and our nonprofit organizations to be able to provide services to them in an effort to uh, to ensure that they're protected through the process. And, and um, we want to make sure that, again, folks that are being taken advantage of, no matter where they're from, no matter their background, no matter their shape, size, color, age, gender, uh, that uh, that we're here to um, to serve them and protect them from the uh, the situations that
0: they've been put into. Kat Weant is a survivor of human trafficking and is founder of the Formation Project. She has a staff of eight folks and has helped work with more than 100 survivors of human trafficking. Here's part of her story.
4: So I moved to South Carolina in 2015 and had just escaped a couple years before that my, my trafficking uh, circumstances. I was trafficked by an older relative from the ages of 14 to 17, but didn't realize that it was human trafficking. I identified with lots of different vulnerabilities and lots of different other things, but did not think that what happened to me was human trafficking because I wasn't taken across state lines or taken to another country or um, held in a basement against my will or duct taped or handcuffed or any of those things that I saw on TV and that I saw in the media. And so I identified as a, as a survivor of many things, but not human trafficking. And I did know that um, I had a story, and that I wanted to use my experiences to help other people. There's really no way to compensate for some of these things, but there, there's a way to make it a gift to other people, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I was uh, volunteering and working for a rape crisis center, and I was sitting in there training to become a victim advocate, and I heard about human trafficking for the first time. And I f- heard the term familial sex trafficking for the first time and was like, that is what happened to me, and I had no clue. And so uh, that led me to uh, another organization doing work overseas, and then uh, doing work domestically with trafficking. But while I was in the domestic work, I uh, was getting, we were getting started, I would say, in 2015, 2016 in our human trafficking efforts in our state. And I met some really amazing people with really great intentions to serve this population but I realized there wasn't a lot of survivor representation. There was no other survivors that I knew of at that time working in the movement in our state. And so I will quickly tell you a, a quick story, but I was specifically serving this one girl who worked so hard at trauma recovery and uh, went through horrific trafficking experiences and got all three of her kids back and got a job and was doing so wonderful. and. A couple years later, she ended up relapsing and passing away, and it wrecked me. I almost, I said, I don't know if I could do this work anymore. And what I realized was she didn't have anyone that she thought that she could call Mm -hmm. and say, hey, I'm thinking about using. Hey, I'm struggling and I need help. Um, She didn't see other survivors on the other other side of trauma recovery to say, I can do this too. She didn't have a community of support and she didn't have a network. And so... Really her story was what propelled me to start the formation project. I knew we needed to create a space for survivors led by survivors and to give opportunities and options for survivors to have a seat at the table, to use their voice however they choose and to impact this space and let us know what we were doing well and let us know what we were not doing
2: so well. Through your personal experience, What was the sign or the signs for you that got you ultimately to the point where you could understand or know that you were being victimized?
4: That's a great question. Uh, Looking back, I had lots of signs, and I I would say signs for human trafficking are tricky sometimes because they can be indicators of of other things that are going on. Um, However, when you're getting multiple signs and multiple vulnerabilities that are overlapping one another, that's when it starts to, I think, raise a really big red flag for human trafficking. So I had childhood sexual abuse from as far back as I can remember. And we know that around 80% of women and children experienced prior sexual abuse before their recruitment into human trafficking. I had night terrors and behavioral issues and struggled with eating disorders and depression and a, a number of different things where I really look back now and say, wow, you were, you were re- crying out for help and nobody realized, nobody saw what was really going on. But unfortunately, my situation was really hard to spot unless you were close in proximity into my life from the outside, it looked pretty normal. My, uh, both of my parents are in law enforcement and um, I went to school and did really well in school. I went to all my doctor's appointments and continued on with my life, but really socially and behaviorally is where I started to act out and you started to see more of those red flags.
0: Robbie Kraft gave more insight on some of the signs of human trafficking among younger victims with his unique perspective from the Department of Juvenile Justice. There's uh, usually some type of abuse in that
5: child's background, uh, some type of trauma that has occurred at a very early age, and that proceeds, if that's not dealt with, um, it proceeds into substance abuse issues, uh, frequent running away, uh, so many of the children, the the victims that become involved with our agency, uh, their first involvement will be through getting a runaway charge, and so it's it's really important that we focus on education, that we see these these children as victims, and understand that that there is no such thing as a juvenile prostitute, that doesn't exist. If if somebody is under the age of eighteen and they are receiving anything of value in exchange for sex, and that could be something as small as a hamburger, uh, it could be a ride to somewhere, uh, money, jewelry, whatever. Um, and, and again, if they're under the age of 18, they are a victim of sex trafficking, and, and frequently, uh, probably more times than not, they don't view themselves
4: mm-hmm.
5: as being trafficked. Uh, they would tell you that, that this person is my boyfriend, I'm doing this because I want to. And that's where our
0: our society needs to make a shift in in how we view uh, these children. Okay, so we have an idea now about the forms of human trafficking and what the problem looks like. But you're probably wondering like, okay, I'm a parent. How can I recognize this or prevent it from happening? Or maybe you want to know what you should be looking for when you're out and about in your daily life. Here's Kat again. And then Felicia follows up with a question for Lieutenant Roy about the powerful and terrifying role social media plays in all of this.
4: Don't be afraid to ask curious questions to your children and to dig a little deeper. If a youth, typically when they're going to disclose something, they're going to give you a little bit of information and test to see how you handle that information. And whether you handle it well or you freak out, they might recant. They might Mm -hmm. recant their disclosure because... They don't want to put any stress more on you, or they don't want to see you really upset or really heartbroken over something that's happened to them. They'd rather keep it to themselves so that they don't have to see a caregiver go through that. So realizing that those little tiny disclosures are, are moments to build trust with that youth and that child. Um, and then to report that to somebody that can provide services and provide options as soon as possible, to make that report, even if it's a questionable situation, better be safe than sorry and, and get somebody involved
2: that can help. Is social media playing a role in this at all? And if so, how?
3: <laughs> I think it's a resounding yes mm. from the entire platform. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's absolutely aiding in the process of folks being exploited, um, whether it's through means of labor, tra- labor services or for sex trafficking. And so we have folks that uh, pick up their, their smartphone Um, And it's on average now that that our teens are on their phones or on these electronic devices more than seven hours a day sometimes Mm -hmm. And so it's important to understand that there are folks out there that want to take advantage of you um, That want to exploit you that want to make money that want to be sexually served or aroused and so uh, or they want to uh, put you into a particular job or field to where again they're able to hire you on at, low, at a low rate of pay or um, not pay you at all in some instances. And so those things are happening. Our folks are often recruited online through social media platforms or, or different software applications on their cellular phones. And then our, our young folks, as Monique referred to earlier, are starting to be engaged more in, in um, exchanging images and things such as that. And uh, these online platforms and many many times we've seen uh, where they begin with chatting with folks that they have no idea who they're chatting with and, and what they're sharing with these individuals. And so you have to know that it's, uh, it's not safe to be sharing information that's certainly personal, uh, your address, where you live, mm-hmm. and things such as that, where folks will um, use that information against you a lot of times to then coerce you and to participate in these types of acts. And that's where in many instances is where it starts.
0: Again, here's Kat Wehunt, who is a former victim of human trafficking and founder of the nonprofit The Formation Project. She gave some hard truths about what is driving sex trafficking and the serious conversations that need to take place with men and boys about the sex industry.
4: This industry is economics 101, and it's fueled by demand of of people purchasing sex. If people weren't purchasing sex at alarming rates in South Carolina. People wouldn't be selling sex at alarming rates in South Carolina, specific to sex trafficking. Um, And we have one of the lowest penalties for buyers in the nation. That's a simple uh, legislative issue that really could use some work so that we can can hold buyers accountable. Don't forget your boys in, in this, your young boys. Not only can they be victims, but I think we can spend all day teaching Young women, how not to be trafficked, but we don't spend a lot of time teaching young men not to purchase sex. Mm. And so I think that making sure that we're teaching people what hypersexualized culture is teaching us and where those boundaries should lie and how to um, respect someone's boundaries and what consent is and what consent is not is super important for this issue.
0: So you just heard Kat there about strengthening laws for those who solicit sex. But like we've said many times on this podcast, we can't necessarily legislate our way out of big problems like this, but that doesn't mean more can't be done. Here's what Lieutenant Roy with Slud wants to see come out of the state house in Columbia, where fighting human trafficking is a bipartisan issue and one that has significant support. The bottom line is a
3: lot. Um, and I say that because uh, while the numbers are increasing, the number of cases that are increasing, the more reporting that's out there, the more our state needs to be able to serve the folks that we come into contact with that are victims of this crime. And so without the resources to be able to protect these folks, they're gonna go back into the, uh, the different situations that they're in, they're gonna relapse. Um, and if we, if we can't provide those resources for extended periods of time, then we're really spinning our wheels. And so uh, we need more resources to serve our adult population, our adult community, to serve our minor children, that we see time and time again that are, that are uh, falling back into these situations. We have folks that are under the age of 18 and, and getting services through the Department of Social Services and other victim service providers that when they turn 18 and they start to transition to being an adult, they, uh, they in many times uh, find themselves back into the traumatic situations that they were in because that's what they knew, that's what they, uh, they've experienced in their life and so we need help to, uh, to be able to, to get those things done, to get those services in place around our state, which we're, we're all working uh, towards systematically to be able to do that. Um, but that, that to me
0: is where we will start to see um, that success. Resources are definitely needed. And Robbie Kraft with DJJ said this when asked by Thalisha, that if he could snap his fingers and get something he needs to address this problem, what it would be. There needs to be
5: a facility or facilities where a a child who's being trafficked, uh, especially if they are continuing to run away and their parents can't maintain them at home, where they can go and be secure, a place they cannot run from, but not a jail, not a DJJ facility. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also a place where they can receive appropriate services, uh, whether it's mental health counseling, trauma-focused counseling, substance abuse counseling, almost like a, a one-stop-shop uh, for those needs to be met. We don't have that in the state of South Carolina, and, and we see so often where kids come to us, uh, we make a report to DSS, we have an interagency staffing, DSS doesn't have anywhere to place them, uh, the child may end up staying in the DSS office overnight, or uh, they run away again, and end up, it it ends up where finally, you know, the court has had enough of it. And so they say, okay, I'm going to put you in DJJ because that's the only place we can keep you safe. And that's just re-traumatizing someone who is already a victim of severe trauma.
0: Okay, folks, that was just a brief summary of that important Palmetto Perspectives episode that we aired on July 20th on SCETV. You can find that entire show and so much more on youtube.com slash South Carolina ETV. And we'll have another podcast for you this week from Miami, or as we call it, Miami. Thanks for listening to the pod, guys. Show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a voicemail at 803-563-7169. You can also stay up to date with the latest news on scetv.org and southcarolinapublicradio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina.